My dear Playbills, welcome to the episode that Louis Armstrong, Bobby Darren, and Ella Fitzgerald don't want you to hear. <laughs> it's monkeys and Playbills, y'all! Hello, everyone. Are you confused? I am. Let's get to it. No, I'm just kidding. Hi, everyone. I'm Jillian Willems. I'm Paul DeGurse, and joining us in studio today is the outstanding Debbie Patterson. Hi, everybody. I'm so thrilled you're here, Debbie. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) Really quick, you're a performer, director, writer, producer, administrator in um, Canada's arts community. You're based here in Winnipeg, same as uh, both of us. Yep. And would you say maybe you're... One of your main artistic activities right now is running Sick and Twisted Theater? That's one of my main activities for sure. Which is absolutely rad. You've been in two separate productions of the Three Penny Opera? I have, yeah. Which is weird. (laughs) (laughs) The only two productions ever done since the 30s and you were in both. Yeah, I was in both of them. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who are joining us for the first time... This is a show about Broadway musicals that ran for 100 performances or fewer. And what the heck happened? And today we're talking about Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera. Definitely the oldest show we've ever talked about on this. uh, I think so. Probably the most influential as well. Oh. This would be one of the like five core shows that like created the Broadway musical. And I think that that is something I'd love to unpack with the two of you because the great debate is, is this even a musical? So There's so much to talk about. Also, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you're about to hear me attempt the German title of this play. The Three Penny Opera or Die Drei Großen Ope. I think that's pretty close. That's okay. (laughs) It opened at the Empire Theater on April 13th, 1933. It closed on April 22nd, 1933 after 12 performances. Now, specifically, this is the New York production. So we'll get into a little bit more of the history. But yeah, those are our stats for, for the American premiere of the stage show. Great. First things first, before we delve into a um, debate, we like to kind of... We like to go through the plot of the show, kind of bit by bit, to make sure that our listeners are on the same page as us. I usually try to summarize because I'm um, I'm pretty absent-minded and it's uh, very difficult for me. Debbie, if at any point you would like to chime in and help me summarize, by all means, please do that. Okay. <laughs> this is going to be especially tricky, I think, for me, Debbie, because... The production that we worked on together Mm -hmm. was not in the order that this show is typically performed in. Or at least there were a few modifications from what I, um, from what I can see. And maybe that's, maybe this is the case with both your productions. Maybe. We used the same translation. So maybe it was the translators that had their way with the, with the scene order. I I believe that's exactly the case. I believe that's 100% the case. All right. So this is going to be as close as we can get to... The Mark Blitzstein translation of Three Penny Opera, which is different from the Jeremy Sams translation, which Debbie and I are both very familiar with. We're going to get into all of this. If that didn't make any sense, it will soon. (laughs) It like super didn't make sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Jill, do you want to put five minutes on the clock or producer Daphne? Your time starts now. So we open on a stage that is not necessarily blank from what I understand. Usually it has a small orchestra on the stage. 
And this singer appears, this street singer, sings about this real bad guy, this guy, uh, Mac the Knife. And Mac the Knife just, he lists all the, Mac the Knife kills people, Mac the Knife, Mac the Knife uh, steals, he um, sexually assaults people, he's just the worst. They're in like London. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is kind of like a prologue type thing, because then we move into the top of Act 1, the first of three acts, um, and we're in, it's like a shop. It's um, a shop that belongs to these two, um, these two called the Peachums, uh, a, man and a, a man and a woman who are a couple. Because this um, through Penny Hopper is all about class. It's about higher class people and um, middle class and lower class and like people who are really um, really struggling to to make ends meet or unhoused. And uh, the uh, the Peachums are like lower class, but they have a lot of status. They have a lot of um, a lot of control over other people. They're kind of like pimps for beggars. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like they, That's exactly you it. know, like they yeah. run they run all the panhandlers. And they yes. they help them with their panhandling act totally. by dressing them up. So they're 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 like pimps for yes, panhandlers. Yes, yes. Cool. Yeah. And and they have a daughter. They have an adult daughter named Polly. And we soon find out that Polly is engaged to um, marry this Mac the Knife guy. We cut to Mac the Knife's secret hideout, where him and Polly are going to get married, and they're waiting um, for. Uh, Max gang to bring back all the stuff for the wedding. They just went and stole a bunch of food and a whole bunch of shit to um <laughs> to have the wedding. Um and so the the gang gets back, they have a wedding and then after the wedding, Polly sings. They're like, "Oh, we need some entertainment. We need some entertainment after this wedding." So Polly sings a song called Pirate Jenny. Mm-hmm. This song like a lot of the songs don't necessarily advance the plot in a purely narrative sense like you would expect out of a Broadway musical, but are kind of these cabaret performances with themes that elaborate on ideas that the play is presenting. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, we have Pirate Jenny, and then there are, these are these are big long scenes as well because these are this is like an older a very old style of writing. These are not the quick scenes that we have in musical theater. So, we're still in this scene, and they're like, "Oh, shoot, the chief of police is here." Uh, and this uh, this chief of police, Tiger Brown, shows up, and but then it turns out he's not there to arrest them. Him and um, Mac are actually buddies who used to be in the army together. Like so, this is, there's all this corruption and everything. Finally, Polly heads home and tells her mom and her dad, Mister and Missus Peachum, that she married Mac, and they're like, "Absolutely not. That's a disaster. You should absolutely not do that. He's a really bad guy." Well, and mostly they're worried that he's going to try to take their money. It's not their yes, character. Yes, absolutely, oh. absolutely. But- He's going through the daughter to get their money. Totally, yeah, yeah. not compassionate at all. Yeah. And so then they yeah. conspire to break them up or to get <laughs> get McKeith arrested. Exactly, exactly. So, and I believe that's the end of Act One. Yeah. So then we're at the top of Act Two, and Polly goes to Mac and is like, "Mac, you gotta get out. Uh, my dad, my parents are gonna get you arrested." And so Mac says, "Yep, absolutely, that makes sense. I'm out of here," and leaves Polly in charge of his gang. Mrs. Peachum, uh, Polly's mother, bribes Jenny. Who is a new character we haven't met yet? A prostitute, um, who is like like used to be uh, Max Lover, and like they're um, yeah they have like a known relationship. Mrs. Peachum bribes Jenny to turn in Mac, betting that yeah. he's going to um go to her. He totally mm. does, and gets turned in. So now he's in jail. And while in jail, his yeah. wife shows up. Yes, not Polly. Oh yeah, oh, that's absolutely. right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and his wife is Tiger Brown, the the chief of police. His daughter. <laughs> Is married to Mac the Knife. <laughs> that's right. So she and now he's also married to to Polly Peachum. So yeah. yeah, that's right. Lucy shows up, then um, Polly shows up as well, and they have a um, kind of a um, kind of a fight, and then um, Polly leaves, and Lucy gets Mac out. Yes, breaks him, springs him from prison, 
Yeah. And now we're into Act Three, where he gets arrested again. He gets he gets arrested again. Tiger Brown shows up and arrests Mac for some reason, and to because he's going to be executed. He's going to be killed. Yeah. He's put to mm. death. This is very sad. Jenny has a song here. Um, Ten seconds. And then um, it's all about how the the world is shit, and you have to um, pay attention to people around you. Yes. Um, we're we're going to get into it a lot. Okay. <laughs> So then he's about to be executed. Oh. Yeah. No, let's, 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 finish, let's finish it up. Let's finish it up. Yep. He's about to be executed. Everyone is gathered to watch the, the hanging. And at the last yep. minute, a messenger arrives from the king to say that he's That's been right. pardoned. Yeah. Um, but it's not a, it's definitely not a satisfying ending. No. It's very much like uh, almost a, like a, a, a parody of a deus ex machina mm. kind of ending. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And not only pardoned, but he's given all this money and all this status and all this uh, authority. Yeah. It's a wild ride is the honest truth. And it's, you know, it was initially written in German at the turn of the century. So there's, you know, even the, even the most contemporary translation still has that, um, that feel of dialogue that um, maybe makes it um, a little, a little hard to follow. And it's also, sometimes tricky to follow because of Bertolt Brecht, the guy who wrote it, um, and what he's uh, what he's doing, which isn't always necessarily just telling a story. Yeah, who claimed to have written it. Aha! Oh, yes, oh I'd love yes, to I, get into oh, this, yeah. too. So it's actually uh, an adaptation of an existing opera called The Beggar's Opera, and it was translated by Elizabeth Hauptmann, who was Brecht's lover at the time. So she was translating this yes. opera written by John Gay, and and it was written like what a hundred years before that something like that. It's a much more a much more traditional yeah, style yeah. opera. And and so she yeah. wrote this translation. Brecht was trying to trying to sell uh, a show to this uh, theater producer, this impresario, and uh, he wasn't inter- interested in the show that Brecht was selling. And he said, "Well, I've got this other one. It's a translation of the Beggar's Opera." And and this impresario was like, "Oh yes, I like that one. Okay." Bring me your translation of the beggar's opera. <laughs> so, so yeah. So that's kind of how it went. He he passed it off as his own. Right. Like he never admitted that that he had not done the. Was it an adaptation or translation? Uh, I can't. I guess both in yeah, a sense. I believe both. I mean, she was translating it, and then I guess some things some things probably changed. He probably put in more songs. Like like I think Pirate Jenny isn't. In like a, a version of Pirate Jenny isn't in the original Beggar's Opera, I don't think. No, because I think a lot of that is kind of enter enter Kurt Vile, enter yeah. This, um, yeah. this other major creative force in this um, in this piece, Kurt Vile, who has already collaborated with uh, Bertolt Brecht at this point in both their careers, I believe, and is from what I understand, they kind of find mutual. They find a mutual friend in each other by way of being two German dudes with a really similar <laughs> sensibility about how the world is shit. I was gonna, I was wondering where you were gonna, what direction you were taking that in. <laughs> like that's kind, that's kind of it with um, with lots of love yeah. to to um, to both yeah. of them. Bertolt Brecht, at this point, is already like making a name for himself as a really interesting classical composer, and so steps on to write the musical adaptations and takes just a ton of influence from German cabaret. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's especially interesting about this piece to me. And maybe we can, you know what? Let's, let's get into, let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about Bertolt Brecht 
and his kind of his style, his what he his whole thing. As someone who uh, works around theater people a lot, but never went to theater school myself, um, I'm wondering if um, you guys would like to riff a little bit on Bertolt Brecht. Okay, I'm no Brecht expert. My intro to theater history teacher would be appalled at my recall <laughs> on Brecht. So <laughs> all I know is that stylistically, he was quite influential as far as like pushing the boundaries of what theater was at that time. I think he's what we would now call meta, you know? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the kind of theater he made was kind of meta, you know, where where it was always commenting yeah. on the fact that you're watching a play. So it's not, he, mm-hmm. he didn't yeah. want people to buy in. He didn't want that suspension of disbelief. He didn't want that that kind of engagement that we usually try to get people, get, you know, try to engage our audience in a certain way. He had a different a different approach to audience engagement that was more about remember you're in a play and don't you know sort of insisting that you you not uh, sacrifice your critical faculties you know that you that you stay mm. stay critically focused on what's what the story is telling you and not just sort of you know relate to the protagonist and and hope that the love interest you know works out and uh, you know all those <laughs> things we do when we when we're usually watching. Um, I remember being really disconcerted when I um I worked on the, the second production of Three Penny Opera that um that Debbie was a part of it was produced by co-produced by uh, your company Debbie Sick and Twisted and by Double A Battery Theater another incredible um couple of producers in Winnipeg and I was lucky enough to be the music director on that production and it was disconcerting coming from almost exclusively like Broadway style musicals up to that point where we just put so much we give so much attention to getting the applause and getting the energy <laughs> up in that room right. to drive through mm-hmm. to the next number. Right. Um, and that's not... That's not what we're doing. Not only is that not <laughs> what's happening, you're actively working against that. Yeah. Um, like there's this element where you want the audience to be a little uncomfortable, like you said, so that they'll actually think about it rather than be lulled into complacency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And Don't is, enjoy yourself too much, you know? It's very weird. <laughs> You, you compound that with the fact, though, that both Brecht and um, Vile are like undeniably really skilled at their um, at their craft. So it's engaging. It is like the the song the songs especially are really good. So to work on the songs and have like just a tear down um, version of Pirate Jenny like we had in the production that we yeah. did, but then because of the way it ends, it shuts down applause, and you just have this void in the theater after it ends. Yeah, it feels very weird. It's very weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those places where you expect the audience to applaud, they don't, which is really cool. Yeah, right. Like it's it's cool that you get a completely different reaction from you know from an audience that's kind of trained to applaud it yeah. after after a great musical number, but they don't. Yeah, because it's not comfortable. Because <laughs> it's not comfortable. Because instead of like Pirate Jenny, for example, goes. Um... It's like the, the end is there's a ship in the harbor. Oh, yes. Da, 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 da. And it ends on this dominant chord mm. on this. Yeah, it doesn't resolve. But then it doesn't go. Right. Or no. whatever you would have to um 
<laughs> get an audience to get on their feet. Right. Like these tools that we use in the Broadway musical so effectively. Mm-hmm. You can just, yeah. like you can guarantee they're going to be on their feet yeah. with the right ending. Refuses and this show guarantees yeah. they won't be. There is, <laughs> exactly, there is no way people can applaud after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He does that a lot where he doesn't resolve it. Yeah. And and nor did we want to. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something so exciting about that because the expectation from the audience to participate in that way, yeah. like not every show warrants that, whether, you know, stylistically. So it's kind of nice as a person who saw this specific production mm-hmm. um, in, you yeah. said 2019, right? I think that's when we did it. Yeah. I remember not not needing to. If that makes sense, because oh, sometimes there's this compulsion to just do it, even if maybe you don't feel the need. Mm. But oh, other people are doing it, or oh, I heard a button, therefore that means, like you exactly. said, you're introducing yeah. that space. But yeah, I I don't mind sitting in the quiet or in the suspension of of those thoughts or mm-hmm. the carry through of yeah. that story. There's a, this other thing that that Bile really didn't think that that music could further the action of the play or give you background to the characters like that it was just it was it was just going to interrupt the action at the right time and and create a little uh a diversion i guess yeah mm. yeah <laughs> that it's not actually furthering the action of the play it's interesting because there's a few moments in the play that do that do further the action like there are things that you can look at them now and you're like oh people drew from this was one of the things Rodgers and Hammerstein and everyone after were drawing from when they created the modern musical theater yeah but a lot of it isn't a lot of it is exactly that like Pirate Jenny like um, we said in the synopsis is there's a whole scene there's a wedding there's lots of dialogue lots of ideas introduced and now let's stop the action literally in the show stop and you perform a number for us Mm -hmm. a number that the text expands on the themes of the um, of the play but has literally nothing to do with um the action no. other than is the jenny in the play supposed to be jenny the um no, no right no they have totally. nothing to do with so each other it's so they just happen to have totally the same name there's pirate jenny and there's an actual jenny in the play but they're different people but what pirate jenny does in terms of yeah. the plot is is it's a moment where paulie kind of terrifies max gang like this, this gang of thugs mm. are all like, holy shit, you know, because she's yeah, yeah. she is so fierce, <laughs> and and that kind of allows her to take over the business later on. You know, when Mac is leaving town and he says Polly's going to run the business, I don't think the 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 guys would have been on side as easily if she hadn't proven herself already with this song. Totally. Right. So that's kind of what it does is it establishes her relationship. Yeah. To yes, gang totally. Mm. So Three Penny premieres in Germany and people like it from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not yeah. at first, apparently. Oh, great. Okay. Like apparently yeah. it was mixed reviews mm-hmm. and then it still ran for like 400 performances or something like that. Right. So maybe it was that thing where it was like, people kept coming because every time you see it, it maybe resonates differently or becomes clearer to you. Or, yeah, I wonder if there was part of the intrigue of the play itself was what kept keep people coming back. Sure. Yeah. So after after that, after its premiere in Germany, kind of the next big move is taking it, ends up being taking it to New York. But it doesn't, it doesn't go so well. And it's very interesting because the whole reason we're able to talk about Three Penny Opera 
on this podcast under the terms of our the terms of our podcast is <laughs> this weird technicality of its first Broadway production. Mm-hmm. Where it goes there in the 30s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Brecht doesn't go with it. Brecht has nothing to do with this other than he says, yes, you can do this. <laughs> um, at this point, Kurt Vile's already um, moved down there. Um, but I don't, I don't know that um, Kurt Vile has an especially big hand in this production either. Mm-hmm. Mark Blitzstein doesn't do the translation. This is a translation by, but that by all accounts is not very good. Right, yeah. And it just gets destroyed uh, in the reviews. Yeah. Do we think the the reason that this translation is not very good is because it was done it was adapted into english by two of the producers of that play like and i'm not suggesting you cannot do both but i'm just saying maybe there was like yeah i don't know i speculate as to whether that might have had something to do with it well maybe now's the time to talk about the translation history of this piece because it's really interesting actually i find the art of translation so fascinating the art of especially translating songs. Yeah. A good a good translation of a musical theater piece that was written in another language, um, like the later translations of Three Penny Opera, Les Mis is probably the most famous translation that we have in our canon right now. The way that a good translation can take, t- take the intent of the original text and craft it in a way that it still works within the musical cadence. It forms um, like a similar kind of rhyme scheme that it maybe would, did in its um, original language but does it um, by using new language, sometimes wholesale creating new language that um, serves the same intent that the uh, the original text did. I think it's an incredible art form. I think it's very fascinating. And so it doesn't surprise me that maybe an initial translation from two folks who are not passionate translators <laughs> right. would think, yeah, well, what do you do? You, you have a German and English dictionary, you go. And you... <laughs> and it would be, a, that's a disaster. Right. The translation that most people know comes... A few years after this, in the uh, mid-50s, I believe, from this 54? guy, Mark Blitzstein. 54? Um, 53, 54? Yes, I think so. And it's this it's this translation mm-hmm. that ends up being the translation used in the New York production. That's like a big smash hit. And it's this New York production that ends up being in the uh, in Greenwich Village. It's like an off-Broadway style thing. And that runs 2,000 performances. That crushes. Amazing. Cool. Yeah, right? And... Mark Blitzstein, very interesting guy as well, the composer of The Cradle Will Rock. Okay. Right? And so these are his, like, two things, is he wrote The Cradle Will Rock, which was, right around then, was another another big deal and a very fascinating piece, and um, all about um, labor relations and um, worker relations, and does this, does this translation that is definitely effective at telling the story of the Three Penny Opera. Then, in 1997... The Donmar Warehouse in um, in England, in London. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and they're like a they're like a rad nonprofit English theater is the vibe I get. Right? Is they've got like they got a mandate. They do cool works there. <laughs> it's it a happen. really cool theater. Yeah. Yeah. Got a mandate. <laughs> they got, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and like a good one, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, they do this production where they get this uh, they get this guy Jeremy Sams to do the translation, and he does this really cool very contemporary text uh translation where it's kind of got this like very greasy cockney thing going Mm. on you listen to your they made a really nice recording of it you listen to this recording you can just feel like you need a bath (laughs) after you after you listen to it you know (laughs) that's what happens after all the best translations (laughs) (laughs) and so that's a version that becomes very popular um because it 
it makes the piece really quite accessible. Whereas when mm-hmm. you listen to Mark Blitz- Blitzstein's translation, there's still some, some of the translation doesn't quite, like it's good. Here, I, I, I have an example. This is the end of act one. This is, I have the Mark Blitzstein version here. And it's the end of act one. And it's the Peachum singing to Polly um, about, um, oh, you shouldn't be with, uh, shouldn't be with Mac. And there's kind of this refrain that is like one of the driving, one of the, it, like it, it's a theme that sums up Textually, it sums up kind of the whole, one of the themes of the show. And in the Blitzstein translation, it's, Oh, sad to say he tells the truth, the world is mean and man uncouth. And in the Sam's translation, it's, It's something that we can't deny, that life's a bitch and then you die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fascinating to, like, undeniably, they're saying, you can, you can see exactly how they both, how they got there from a presumed yeah. German translation. But one using, like, lower language and... Just a, a little bit of a cadence switch mm-hmm. is so much is so much easier for at least my contemporary ears mm-hmm. to understand like that. That's my kind of quick rundown of the major three penny translations that have happened. There's a few other adaptations. There was one in the late '90s that Wallace Shawn did. Oh, cool! That's that's the one that um, Alan Cumming starred in. Oh, wow! Where yes. Alan Cumming played uh, McKeith. By all accounts, it's um, very bizarre and takes some pretty significant liberties. There was a production where Sting. Was McKeith? Like in the late 80s, right? On Broadway. 89. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Like, I mean. Tim Curry was McKeith. Oh, oh, that tracks. Yeah. Oh, he was probably incredible. Oh, I would have loved to have seen Sting, that. I'm not so sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to pass like, judgment. Awesome. Like. No. Maybe I should reach out and just ask. <laughs> How did probably. that go for you? <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask, having gone through kind of this. A bit of a rundown here. What's what's everyone's relationship like with the Three Penny Opera? When did you first check it out? Had you checked it out before now? I first became familiar with the music when I was in theater school and we were doing um, a, a music segment and we learned a bunch of the songs, but it was a different translation of the lyrics. It wasn't the Jeremy Sams translation. It was a Canadian playwright and I don't know who. When Shakespeare in the Ruins produced it at the warehouse, mm-hmm. Here in Winnipeg, we tried to use that translation and the estate wouldn't let us. Mm. Um, but that was my first exposure to the music was was yeah. through this music unit we did at, at theater school. And and you know, a number of people learned solos from it. Yeah. And we learned some of the some of the choral numbers. We learned the um the wedding song mm-hmm. that the, the the gang sings for McKeith and Polly, and we learned uh oh the the Tiger Brown song. Oh the like the, 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 the army song. Yep, totally. Yeah, yeah. But it was our last recourse is to join the forces. Oh, sure. The world we never saw. <laughs> <laughs> Which was kind of a parody on a, on a, like a Canadian Armed Forces ad was see the world you've never seen. Oh, that's so like, the funny. Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. And then we did a production of The mm-hmm. Warehouse as part of Brecht Fest. Our MTC was doing the Master Playwrights mm-hmm. Festival. Yep. We brought in Richard Armstrong, who's an extended voice specialist, to work with us on the singing. His approach to, to singing is all about exploring the cracks, like like looking for the parts of your voice that you think are ugly and really like digging into those and like finding the beauty in the ugly. Hell yeah. And so that's kind of where we where we started with the, the vocal approach to the production. Oh, that's so cool. That's really cool. Yeah. I kind of came at it a slightly different way. I came at it almost exclusively through the music first, but not knowing it was part of Three Penny. Yes. Um, through hearing like 
recordings of Mac the Knife, um, which kind of became this breakaway pop single when it was recorded by Louis Armstrong and then Bobby Darin in quick succession. It kind of, it became this jazz standard. And so as I was growing up and studying jazz in high school and university, I kind of became familiar with this really fun jazzy song with these really <laughs> bizarre lyrics. And, you know, you look it up and you see in the books, the, you know, get your jazz fake book and you've got the chord chart for <laughs> Mac the Knife from the Three Penny Opera. I was like, oh, okay, well, so that, that's what that is, the Three Penny Opera. And that was honestly, like, I gained a bit more knowledge than that. I learned that Kurt Weill was a composer and Bertolt Brecht was a playwright and they wrote the Three Penny Opera. But I couldn't have even summarized it, honestly, until the uh, the two companies mentioned before, Sick and Twisted and Double A Batteries, approached me about being the um, music director for the 2019 production. And then I started doing some listening and doing a bunch of reading and found, thought it was very interesting. I listened to the that Donmore Warehouse recording of the Jeremy Sams translation a bunch and really dug it and thought it was cool. And then I remember going and checking out the Blitzstein translation, the recording from the 1950s, the recording of that off-Broadway production. And it's so fascinating to me how different it is and how hard I think it would be to get into it if, uh, if that had been my first introduction. I think I can, I really enjoy it now because I think it's fascinating and I can kind of see the cultural context mm -hmm. of it. It definitely sounds like pre-Golden Age mm -hmm. musical theater. Yeah. Um, and that's not even a diss, but it's definitely a potential barrier to entry, mm -hmm. you know? Right, yeah. What about you, Jill? <laughs> what was your relationship like with Three Penny Opera before Sorry. today? I'm <laughs> laughing because, um, like, Paul, you called it like a fun jazz tune. Yeah. Mac the Knife, you called it like a fun jazz tune because my exposure to the music uh, from Three Penny was only through that song and only done by folks who sang it sort of like a lounge. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like a lounge yeah, yeah. ditty. Yeah. And so I didn't fully uh, understand how gritty it was until seeing it in context in the show. So so I didn't super have a lot of um, information ahead of seeing the 2019 production that you both worked on. And I kind of loved seeing it because I went alone, which was wonderful. Like, I'm so glad I experienced it by myself. Yeah, I just, I guess I didn't realize how gritty it was because my intro to it was like Frank Sinatra singing Mac the Knife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, you miss so much if that's your your first experience, I guess, because it takes it right out of context and and then you don't get the rest of the story, which is that commentary, that social commentary. And like and not just not just even gritty, but like the whole piece is a really vicious indictment of capitalism. Right. It's not subtle. It's two middle fingers up the whole <laughs> way through. <you> yeah. Know? <laughs> which is why I thought it was so exciting to perform it with a integrated cast with so many performers yes. with disabilities yes mm -hmm. that kind of the ableism is is rooted in capitalism you yes know, the idea mm -hmm. that that if you have value in society it's because you can work and produce yeah and if you can't work and produce yeah disabled people were termed useless eaters people who consume but don't actually contribute anything to society um because we don't work uh, or you know some of us are unable to work it, the, the indictment of capitalism is kind of cranked up a notch when there's all these disabled bodies on stage. Yes. And and there's also the thing that Peachum does. He helps some of the, the people that he's employed to be panhandlers pass off disabilities so that they'll get more That's pity right. and make more money. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So they, they they kind of play the crypt card as as panhandlers. <laughs> sure. yeah. Even if they don't even if they don't aren't aren't actually card carrying members of the, <laughs> of the community, you know, they play that card. 
get money. So it's, 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 and, and the fact that the, the peach and we had doing it was deaf yes. was even more fun. Absolutely. Yes. Is that one of the reasons why this piece is so enduring? Yeah. It's coming up on a hundred years old at this yeah. point, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there are obviously in the theater tradition, there's lots of shows old and older than that, that we explore, but not many, and especially not many from that time period yeah. right there. And this show still, not only do we still produce it, we still see it. But when you see it, it feels vital. It feels electric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a nice, a nice production makes you, it makes you think about why, uh, why are we still dealing with this? This mm-hmm. play was written over a hundred years ago. Why on earth does this still play so well? This shouldn't play this well anymore. This should be a relic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not obsolete yet. No, exactly. No. There's some interesting conversation I've heard about the morality of even making money off productions of Three Penny Opera, at least um, doing Three Penny Opera in a theater company where people are not paid the same or pay equality is not, um, like fair pay is not in play for everyone involved in the um, in the show. Mm-hmm. Something fascinating in that, in something like Three Penny Opera existing in our current theater system, which is, you know, even though it's an art system, it's a capitalist system. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's a bit uncomfortable. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's really uncomfortable when you, when you kind of, when you kind of confront it, hey? Yeah. But then also... You know, I acknowledge that the word the words are powerful. It's a powerful play, but mm-hmm. I'm also reluctant sometimes to deify Brecht and Vile. It's a whole a whole bunch of stuff, and it's a play. I, guess, I suppose it's a play that keeps on giving. You yeah. Know, in that sense. So I'm trying to think if there's any final thoughts to bring up here. Well, you were talking about how influential you think this show has become. Where can you kind of see those influences mm-hmm. in musical theater history? It's awesome. Oh, I'm really glad you asked that because the line is um, the line is very clear wow. in my mind. That's great. From Brecht, because there's the, and then there, there's a pause. There's a pause a little bit because Rodgers and Hammerstein do their own thing and do it mm-hmm. so well and so solidly that it kind of for ten years that's that's it. But then then Candor and Ebb come along. I was just gonna say Candor yeah. and Ebb and Candor oh and gosh. Ebb yes. dig vile. Yeah, and you can hear. Hear it in everything Candor and Ebdu, mm-hmm. from obviously Cabaret is the big one, yeah, um, because they're literally drawing on German cabaret music, which Vile was one of the major proponents of. So just by nature, there um, it sounds like it. But also Cabaret takes a lot from from Brecht. It's like kind yes. of Brechtian. There's direct address. It's a it's a hopeless show. It's not a fun show. Mm-hmm. Cabaret surprisingly long and surprisingly uncomfortable to sit through for a hit musical. <laughs> right. I'm no, but it's the thing Debbie was talking about, the sort of like yes. holding a mirror up to the audience in a sense, and then society through that. 100%. It's really fascinating as a structure for what we sort of had grown to believe was like a very polite art form yeah. with, you know, with beautiful scores, sweeping scores. Yes. And then it's like, oh no, it can be something else too. And that's kind of the cool thing about Three Penny in in general. You mentioned beautiful sweeping scores. It was originally as originally orchestrated, and this is before the time of um, you know, please reduce this to five pieces for our orchestra. So this is <laughs> Kurt Vile's intention. It was orchestrated for like seven and it was mostly woodwinds and doing like woodwind doubling and tripling. So it's got this bizarre open stark Mm -hmm. sound it's not lush by any means it almost sounds i don't want to say tinny but like it's fragile almost oh sure that was um that original orchestration um a sound that is so in contrast to what was happening on broadway at the time and then what happened with rogers and hammerstein immediately after so that's one place where the influence is the other the other big one is this 
really fascinating piece that I'm sure you've both heard of called Urinetown. <laughs> That's this very, very interesting musical from the early 2000s that never really got the credit it deserved on Broadway, at least. It's a mix between a parody and a very loving tribute to Kurt Weill and Berthold Brecht <laughs> in... In every aspect, it's um, it's it, it's music is very much not only written but orchestrated in this style. A lot of the songs take the old style um, in quotes approach of stepping out of the action and delivering a story song rather than a narratively driven song. There's a, a narrator character who direct addresses the audience through the whole thing. It's a kind of this dystopian world that is consumed by greed and people fight against greed, but they don't really win, and it all kind of ends on this bizarre, sad note. <laughs> it's a very fascinating piece that I don't think a lot of people got at the time, but is kind of this bizarre spiritual successor, almost sequel to Three Penny Opera written 75 <laughs> years later. <laughs> I think the reason, too, that maybe folks don't draw that parallel, because I don't yeah. know that I would have until you said that. Like, sonically, it is yeah. quite contemporary. Like, it yeah. follows all the tropes of, like, what contemporary musical theater was in the early 2000s, that maybe there isn't that initial connection made. Totally. But in terms of circumstance, they are, yes, absolutely connected. And it's it's interesting. I, I'd always known that it was kind of there. I'd heard that, but it wasn't until I began preparing for a production of Three Penny Opera, because I, I, I could hear the overture to Urinetown in my head, and it had always been this bizarre <laughs> overture where I was like, that sounds weird. Um, Daph, maybe we can put a clip of it here. Because then you listen to the overture from this Donmar Warehouse production of Three Penny, and you're like, oh, that's what that is. Okay, wow. yeah, totally. It's instantaneous, and it's mm. there, it's very deliberate. Um, maybe we can put a clip of that one there now, Daph. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me how to do my job, Diggers. <laughs> Thank you, Daphne. <laughs> Who composed You're in Town? Um, You're in Town was composed by a man named Mark Hallman with lyrics by mm -hmm. him and a playwright named Greg Cottis. And the book was by Cottis. It's a very fascinating show that I think deserves a revisit. So, I don't know. Does, does anyone else have any thoughts on, on Three Penny's influence? You see it in Sondheim as well, right? Sondheim is all over that and kind of those... Yeah. Just the grown-up themes and it's a like a play <laughs> with... Like even Sondheim's musicals, undoubtedly they are musicals, but they're really plays with music. Yes. In comparison to what came before. You're right. Yeah. I think of Assassins. I think of Sweeney. Because it really is the blurred lines, too, of like who you're rooting for. Yes. From the other side. It's really fascinating to put that on its head. And I think that's why I immediately thought of Candor and Ebb. But yeah. now talking about Sondheim, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Not not as much musically in that it's not drawing from like German cabaret as much. Right. But like just all the harmonic shit that Kurt Vile's doing, like all this. Mm -hmm. Like this weird chromatic spaced out. That's all some Sondheim stuff, you know? Oh, yeah. Like he's he takes yeah. from there all the time. I could talk about Kurt Vile all day. I think Kurt Vile's just the coolest composer. Go ahead, Paul. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I know better than to invite that. I know better than to invite that. <laughs> Should we talk a little bit about yeah. what I had said earlier, which was the great debate about whether we could even call this 
Like, what do we call it? How do we categorize this piece? Mm -hmm. Because there is this conversation surrounding. Is it an opera? Is it an operetta? Is it a musical? And I mean, I'm not saying we need to decide because I think there Mm -hmm. is beauty and indecision in this regard. But I just wonder if anyone has any thoughts or feelings about it. I would like to take you now to me in 2018, asking Paul why he called our company the Village Conservatory for Music Theater, and asking him to explain why why it's not called the Village Conservatory for Musical Mm -hmm. Theater. So I think that, Paul, you cited this this show as an example of of music theater and what, what that meant and how you could have a show with music in it that is not a musical. And and now I'm inviting you to say some pretentious things about that. Go go ahead. I would love to. <laughs> so in my mind, <laughs> in my mind, musical theater is a term that has become synonymous with the Rodgers and Hammerstein style of constructing a show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that as a shot in any way. That's a an incredible way of constructing a narrative that waves text and music together to act as one. Like there's a reason it's so enduring. It rules. We use it. To this day, incredible musicals are being written that use the um, like the Broadway Rodgers and Hammerstein style of musical theater. That said, that that's not the only way of combining music and theater to communicate a narrative. I like the term music theater because it allows it allows people to maybe let go a little bit of the expectation that it's going to be something Rodgers and Hammerstein style, <laughs> and will instead be literally something. All you know is that it has music in it and it has theater in it. And they're going to play together. You know, is this musical theater? Is this not musical theater? I think there's no question it's not the Rodgers and Hammerstein style of musical theater writing. Mm -hmm. I think more importantly, I'd be really hesitant to advertise it as a musical. Just from a producing standpoint, I don't think you'd get an audience (laughs) who would be into it. (laughs) Maybe Debbie can speak to that a little bit. Oh, sure. Someone who produced it a few years ago. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, well, they, I think they call it a play with music and not a musical, but yeah. I guess the, the form of musical didn't exist when it was written. Yeah. But it is a play with music. It's it's a different thing. It's more like a narrative theater and cabaret hybrid yes. than it is a musical. There's, cause there's so much play. Like, there's a lot yeah. of words in there. There's yeah. a lot of text. Um, there's three acts. There's, yeah. <laughs> and like... <laughs> honestly like five songs per act and they're all like three minutes like there's yeah there's, there's plenty of music in this but the music to text ratio is pretty pretty high how, how do we as artists get an audience for a show that is meant to alienate them slash does it matter <laughs> is that even yeah. the point you know <laughs> yeah. well i think it, i just think it appeals to a certain kind of audience i don't know all the you know the curmudgeons yeah. and, the, and the cynics <laughs> you know so what I'm hearing is semantics. It's <laughs> it's semantics because we don't have to pin it down. It's not about that. Like I also and I this is like totally not necessarily related, but for me I I can identify more things that we have dubbed musicals. Like I think of Company. I've never thought of Company as a musical. Sure. Like like it is, yep. but for me it's always felt like a play with music. Yes. And so, yeah, if we sat down, I'm sure we would really, yeah, it would sort of challenge our perception of what what we've deemed to be musical theater. Yeah. And I'm going to do that. All the musicals ever. (laughs) (laughs) Go down the list. 
Um, also, the Tony Awards weren't invented no, yet, they weren't. and that's all. Nope. Um, but sorry, yep. normally Debbie, there is a section of our podcast where we talk about the Tony Awards of that year, what was nominated, what won, uh, and the Tony Awards were not a thing in 1933. Ooh. So, uh, <laughs> so we don't have to talk about that. However, I f- have a fun fact. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, in the inaugural Tony year, Kurt Vile won for Street Scene. Oh, really? So it's kind of a fun little connection. I'm pretty sure 1947. Yeah, that sounds right. Wow. Well deserved. So good for Vile. Nice connection. I know the the big off-Broadway production, the one that did very well, took some... Oh, this is really embarrassing. We may have to cut this out. Jill, what are the off-Broadway awards called again? <laughs> Those are the Obies? Those are the Obies, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it took like, a few Obies. <laughs> um, Kurt Vile's partner, Lottie Lenya, was um, was oh, in yeah, that Lottie production. Um, and she took a... She was Jenny and she took a Obie, I think? Oh, yes. Tony Award in 56. Yeah. Was it a Tony it a Award? Tony. Oh, wow. It was the only time an off-Broadway performance has been so honored. Ooh. That's so funny. That's really cool. That's really Very fascinating. Cool. Yeah. Oh, so that's that's the Three Penny Opera. It's I think we're still seeing it's uh, still seeing the ripples from it uh, from it today. Debbie, thank you so much. This was really fun. Yes. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, it was it was our pleasure. Uh, Jill, we could we should plug um, into the woods. Oh, sure. We mm-hmm. could talk about that. I've I've started rehearsals today, as a matter of fact. Um, I will be choreographing Into the Woods at the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre. I'm looking so forward to diving in to that music I love so much. If you couldn't tell by the only composer I brought up today, which was Sondheim, <laughs> that I'm obsessed. No. <laughs> like, it's a good other composer to bring up in a Kurt Weilbert mm-hmm. I know, discussion. you're right. Yes, no, you're right. We're not too far off. It wasn't me trying to find a reason to no. talk about Sondheim. <laughs> like every other episode. Um, yeah, oh, good point. Um, but yeah, no, I'm super looking forward to it, and I hope that folks can come. Uh, we run, I want to say, January 12th to February something. So see you there. <laughs> and then I think the the last things to plug are this uh, this podcast is supported by the Crescent Arts Centre, and this season is produced um, with generous support from the Canada Council for the Arts. We have two other podcasts also in this uh, network of podcasts that uh, the Village Conservatory is running these days. One is a mentorship podcast, where we've paired a few emerging artists with a few established artists. They've worked together, they created something together, and they recorded podcasts talking about their experiences. That's called It Takes Two. We also coming in the new year, Tales of the Great Transfiguration, the Village Conservatory's first new work commission from local playwright Ben Townsley. That's going to be a narrative podcast series coming early in the new year. Cool. Oh, yeah. Until then, please stay tuned for next time when we talk about... That's where I left the space so that Daphne could edit in what we're going to talk about. It's better if Daph just keeps that the tail end of that. Yeah, sure. That's my preference yeah. anyway. And then Daphne's going like to do Like, it's still going to switch between you talking yeah. to like, please join us next time where we talk about a strange loop. Exactly. Yeah. Noticeably not baritone voice. Uh, so that's what, that's what I was imagining. I love it. Please remember to rate, wow. review, subscribe. And have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Night. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. 
Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Visit spring.com and search Monkeys and Playbills to find mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, and more designs coming soon. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theater podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. We wanted to give a special thank you to the Canada Council for the Arts for supporting this season of Monkeys and Playbills. To learn more about the other podcasts in the Village Conservatory family, you can visit villageconservatory.com, or if you're on Apple Podcasts, visit the Village Conservatory channel in the app. Mm-hmm.